0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number three, the book of Amos, chapters one and two. Well, the last time we met, we pursued our study of Amos chapter one and the oracles of judgment against several pagan Gentile nations to investigate the biblical meaning of the word. Love, love, ahab or ahav in in Hebrew. And I can't sufficiently stress the vital importance of properly understanding the biblical notion of love as it affects every aspect of our lives, including how we practice our faith, how we relate to God, how we relate to our fellow man. Now the conclusion that was reached is the result of much solid evidence from both within and without the Bible itself just as importantly from one, from uh, within and without the Hebrew culture of the various Bible eras including the one that concerns Amos the 8th century BC and it turns out that the meaning of the term Love needs to be understood within two different spheres depending on the context and the subject matter. Now, one sphere concerns human emotion, the other concerns the political, legal, and the tangible. Ancient written records of the societies and the cultures that formed the many Middle Eastern nations neatly coincide with Hebrew records, such that we find there was no discernible difference among all these cultures and nations as to the common, well-understood, everyday use of the term love in their own peculiar literature and their practices. The bottom line is that more often than not, love is defined in the Bible and among these many societies as loyalty, allegiance, faithfulness. Faithfulness to a superior or to a covenant partner. Only occasionally, in certain circumstances, does love involve the emotional sphere, that is, romance or warm affections. Even in the matter of romance, and especially as it concerns the expected result of romance, which is marriage between a male and a female, the emotional sphere is intended to overlap the political and the, 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 the tangible sphere rather than to replace it. That is, whereby love of one's king only involves the emotional element of warm affections in the most minimal way. And in practice, it's completely it's a completely unnecessary element. Marriage and romance rely heavily, uh, heavily on that emotional element of warm affections. but also includes the equally strong element of faithfulness and loyalty to one's spouse or betrothed. In fact, the physical, tangible, sphere of love as loyalty, allegiance, and faithfulness in the Biblical notion of marriage proportionately surpasses that of romance and warm affection between marriage partners. Therefore, when we look at the two foundational commandments that underpin all of God's laws, which are to love God with all our being and to love our neighbor, our fellow man, as ourselves, then the instruction is for us to show unwavering loyalty and faithfulness to God as our one and only divine superior and king and to be as actively concerned to see to the well-being of our neighbor as we would normally be concerned for ourselves. You know, loyalty and faithfulness to God is by definition completely wrapped up in our obedience to Him. Completely. It's defined, it's codified by His natural and by His written laws and commands. Loyalty to our neighbor is by definition completely wrapped up. And our tangible involvement in caring for our neighbor in practical ways. Good deeds. Now, naturally, God wants this loyalty to come from our inmost desire to have an intimate spiritual relationship with Him. And this is as opposed to coercion and the threat of harm to us for being disobedient. And He wants us to have a sincere inner desire to help our neighbor out of, us, out of our sense of compassion for them. But in no case are our emotions to be the primary source or driving force of our relationship with God or with our fellow man. Rather, as children of God, and as his worshipers, and even more so as those who have been saved and delivered by the selfless act of Messiah Yeshua on the cross, we have obligations to God and to our neighbor that are to be carried out regardless of how we feel about it. Thus, while this is a general and a fundamental understanding, of the biblical use of the word love. It also applies directly now to Amos 1 9 and the oracle of judgment against Zor, because they broke a covenant. That is, in biblical terms, they did not love their covenant partner. So let's move on now to the next judgment oracle that concerns Edom. We're going to be Begin by rereading the remainder of Amos chapter 1. So open your Bibles back to Amos chapter 1 and we will get started. Starting in verse 11. Here is what Adonai says For Edom's three crimes, no four, I will not reverse it. Because with sword he pursued his kinsmen and threw aside all pity, constantly nursing his anger, forever fomenting his fury. I will send fire on Taman and it will consume the palaces of Bozrah. And here's what Adonai says, For the people of Ammon's three crimes, no four, I will not reverse it. Because they ripped apart pregnant women, just to expand their territory. I will set fire to the wall of Rabbah, and it will consume its palaces amid shouts on the day of battle, amid a storm on the day of the whirlwind. Their king will go into exile, he and his princes together. Now the nation of Edom had a long, a a very well-established ethical and familial tie with Israel. And whereas the complete Jewish Bible says, the ties were with Edom's kinsman. In fact, what it literally says is with his brother. Now the Hebrew word being translated is ach. and it is in its literal, it's technical sense, it means brother while at the same time it can be used as an expression to mean a person's family relatives in in, in general. Here it probably makes most sense to see it as meaning brother, because the founder of the nation of Edom was Esau, who was the twin brother of Jacob, the founder of the nation of Israel. Now going back even to the birth narrative of Esau and Jacob, their relations were always strained. In fact, those strained relations literally began in the womb. Esau was later promised a blessing, if you could call it that, that he would always live by the sword. Listen to Genesis twenty-seven, Genesis twenty-seven verses thirty-eight to forty. Esau said to his father, "Have you only one blessing, my father?" Father, bless me too. Esau wept aloud, and Isaac his uh, father answered him Here, your home will be in the richness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. You will live by your sword and you will serve your brother, but when you break loose, you will shake his yoke off your neck. Now, Edom was located in the southwest, to the southwest of both Judah and, and Israel. The two major cities of Edom are mentioned in this judgment oracle, Teman and Bosra. Bosra was Edom's northernmost major city, Teman was its southernmost. Therefore, the purpose behind mentioning these two cities located at the two extreme compass directions of Edom is to indicate inclusiveness. That is, all of Edom is guilty and they will be punished. Now, going back far in history, long after the time of Jacob. We find that Edom used violence to try to stop Israel from peacefully passing through it on their way from Egypt to Canaan. In a a nutshell, this wrathful reaction of God towards Edom is the culmination of centuries of Edom's wrath and venom towards Israel happening under various circumstances over those centuries. And whereas Edom, above all nations, should have shown compassion towards Israel, they instead continued on with a blood feud between Jacob and Esau that had begun when Jacob used dishonesty to secure a birthright that by tradition belonged to his brother Esau. Edom and Israel were nearly always enemies, at one another's throats throughout the era of the judges, the kings, even extending into the time when Judah was exiled to Babylon. Well, the next oracle of destruction was upon Ammon, and the Ammonites lived in a very harsh land on the east side of the Jordan River. Since acquiring a better land, would have been constantly in the minds of the leaders of the nation of Ammon, that's not surprising that they would mount regular military incursions into their neighbor's territory to try to take at least some of it in order to improve their own condition. It's the context of at least one of these incursions that God says Ammon ripped unborn children from their mother's wombs. Many Bible academics have actually suggested that such a barbarous crime as this didn't actually happen. It was just hyperbole, but we find mention of it in too many places in the Bible and in the records of other ancient Middle Eastern peoples to just blow it off as but a cultural expression or a cultural exaggeration. One of a few examples of this is we find in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 12. Hazael asked, Why is my Lord crying? And he answered, Because I know the disasters you'll bring on the people of Israel. You will set their fortresses on fire, you will kill their young men with the sword, you will dash their little ones to pieces, you will rip their pregnant women apart. Now the punishment that will be inflicted upon the nation of Ammon is for their primary city, probably their capital, to be burned to the ground. The modern city of Amman, Jordan sits atop the former location of Rabbah. And once we get to the time of Alexander the Great and then into the time of the rise of the Roman Empire, the city was renamed to Philadelphia. Ironically. In Amos' day, the nation of Ammon was actually under the control of Israel. So whatever was the exact incident that this particular oracle pointed towards had to have been a matter of history. Very probably this isn't even about just one particular incident, but rather something that the Ammonites had perpetrated upon Israel on, on a few occasions. Well. We've now read of a few of these judgment oracles that involve fire. See, this is standard Torah language for what God will do to a nation's cities for their disobedience to His moral code, and in some cases, for their direct assaults upon His chosen people. And I'm going to remind you that in the Bible, fire is usually used to do one of two things. Either to purify or to destroy. God is here using fire to destroy, and it's clear that the fire that will destroy Rabbah will not be supernatural, as with Sodom and Gomorrah. Rather, it's going to come as a result of a battle. An enemy of Ammon will be used to savage them on Jehovah's behalf. Well, Now would be a good time to mention that phrases like the day of combat, the day of battle, the day of storms, or the day of whirlwinds, are all meant to be synonymous with the more well-known phrase, the day of the Lord. That is, what is occurring is at the Lord's doing, Jehovah is intervening in the history of men. It is meant as divinely sourced judgment, even if by all outward appearances. It seems as though it is but another of the endless wars and atrocities that humans commit against other humans. Now, The mention in verse 15 of Ammon's king and his princes being sent into exile means that the leadership of Ammon will also be removed, thus suffering the worst punishment possible for a king, for he and his family to permanently lose their position and their power. And it's more than interesting to notice that of the crimes listed against all these pagan nations this far, nothing is said about worshipping false gods or about idolatry. Rather all of these trespasses against God's laws are human against human. They all violate the principle of love your neighbor, more often than not referring to our dealings with our fellow man broadly and in general as opposed to a specific person located nearest to us. This is why we do not see these nations spoken of in terms of the chief god that they worshipped, that is, that nation's national or patron god, as we'll so often find in the Bible. So gods and their human priests are never the directly mentioned subjects of God's judgment. Rather, the subjects are nations and their national political leaders With their wrong actions that have to do with people harming other people, not with improper religious ritual. So let's move on now to chapter two Amos chapter two. Open your Bibles back up again. We're going to read all of Amos chapter two. Amos chapter two. Here is what Adonai says. For Moab's three crimes, no four, I'll not reverse it, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom, turning them into lime. I will send fire on Moab and it will consume the palaces of Creote. Moab will die with turmoil and shouting, along with the sound of the shofar. I will cut off the judge from among them and kill all his princes with him. Here is what Adonai says. For Judah's three crimes, no four, I will not reverse it. Because they rejected Adonai's Torah, they have not observed his laws, and their lies caused them to fall into error and live the way their ancestors did. I will send fire on Judah, and it will consume the palaces of Yerushalayim. Here is what Adonai says, For Israel's three crimes, no four, I will not reverse it. Because they sell the upright for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes, grinding the heads of the poor into the dust and pushing the lowly out of the way. Father and son sleep with the same girl, profaning my holy name, lying down beside any altar on clothes that were taken in pledge, drinking wine in the house of their god, bought with the fines they imposed. I destroyed the Amorites before them, though tall as cedars and strong as oaks. I destroyed their fruit above. And their root below. More than that, I brought you up out from Egypt. I led you forty years in the desert, so that you could have the Amorites land. I raised up some of your sons to be prophets, other young men of yours to be Nazarene, Nazar- uh, Nazarites, uh, Nazarites. People of Israel, isn't that true? asked Adonai. But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and ordered the prophets don't prophesy. Well, enough. I will make all this crush you, just as a cart overloaded with grain crushes what's under it. Even the swift won't be able to flee. The strong won't be able to use their strength. The warriors won't save themselves. Archers won't be able to stand. The fastest runners won't save themselves. Those on horses won't save themselves. On that day, even the bravest warriors will throw off their weapons and flee, says Adonai. Well, chapter two opens with yet another oracle of judgment against yet another pagan nation, Moab. Now, while I've discussed this at length over these first three lessons of Amos, I will reiterate that it is paramount that we take notice that God fully expects the nations, meaning non Hebrew nations, Gentiles to also obey His laws and commands, because disobeying these laws is what's prompting God to react against them. You know, it puts to shame the central, age-old church doctrine that God's laws and commands were only ever for Israel and no one else, so the church is now exempt. The book of Amos destroys that notion. In detail. Paul does as well by explaining in Romans chapter 2 that the laws given to Israel in the covenant of Moses are no different than the natural law, the knowledge of which is innate to all human beings without the need really for it to even be written down. The nations not having immediate access to the Torah, well, that's no excuse for Gentiles to transgress, to go against all that the Torah demands. This is because all the Torah really does is to flesh out in further, fuller detail what the natural law placed by God into all mankind already communicates, and therefore how it ought to be acted out. Moab was a brother nation of Ammon and also located in a hard Scrabble area on the east side of the Jordan River. The crime God focuses on has to do with the proper burial of a person, in this case, the king of an enemy. The enemy was Edom. History and archaeology show that Moab and Edom were enemies, with Moab erecting a number of fortifications along its border with Edom. We are told that instead of a proper and respectful burial, Moab burned the bones of the king of Edom. This is not an expression. It means that Quite literally, and with malicious intent, the king of Edom's bones were burned to ashes. Why? So that no burial was possible. What's the meaning of this atrocity? Why was it considered so terrible? It's because the common belief of the ancient people of that day was that skeletal remains, bones. That's what was needed for any hope of that person to participate in resurrection. As was commonly believed, not just among Israel, should a God decide to resurrect a person from the dead, the bones would be reused as the structure upon which to construct new flesh, and then to give this person new life. We find this notion, front and center, in the book of Ezekiel. Listen to Ezekiel 37, starting with verse 1. With the hand of Adonai upon me, Adonai carried me out by his Spirit, and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of what bones. He had me pass by all around them. There were so many bones lying in the valley, they were so dry. He asked me, human being, can these bones live? Adonai Elohim, only you know that, and then he said to me, prophesy over these bones. Say to them, dry bones, hear what Adonai has to say. To these bones, Adonai Elohim says, I will make breath enter you and you will live. You see the relationship? between bones and resurrection. So for a person's bones to be burnt to ashes means that person will remain eternally dead. Now please hear me, this isn't necessarily true, nor is it actually what happens, rather this is what the people of that era believed was so. So, from God's perspective, this despicable act of burning a person's bone to ashes is all about bad intent and a spirit of evil. And since resurrection of the dead is an important feature of God's will for humans, then for one person to intentionally try to prevent the resurrection of another person is a grievous trespass. There's a famous story in the book of Samuel about a group of Israel who tried to prevent just such a thing from happening for King Saul. Listen to 1 Samuel 31, starting at verse 7. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the far side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Shaul, Saul, and his sons were dead. King Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned the cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and lived in them. The following day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found King Saul and his three sons lying dead on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head. They stripped off his body armor and sent these all over the territory of the Philistines to carry the news to the temples of their idols and to the people. Then they put his armor in the temple for the Ashtaroth and fastened his body to the wall of Beit Sham. When the people living in Jabesh-Gilead heard about what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their warriors set out traveling all night. They took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons off the wall of Bethshan, returned to Jabesh and burned them there. There they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. So, men friendly... To King Saul burned up his body almost certainly because he had been dismembered so thoroughly. But they were careful to be sure that the fire was not so hot as to burn up his bones. And after the flesh had burned away, they rescued his bones and gave them a proper burial because in their cultural mindset, these bones were the most important part of the body to be preserved. The same sort of procedure occurred well in the New Testament times as we see that typical Jewish burial involved laying a corpse into a burial cave, allowing time and natural decay to occur until only the bones remained, and then they would transfer those bones to a what's called a burial box an ossuary that would then be put away somewhere else indefinitely this was intended to ensure the possibility for that person of resurrection now the result of Moab's actions was that God would fight fire with fire since they burned up the bones of an Edomite king God would burn up Moab. And since you can't burn up land, then of course it would have to be man-made structures that were destroyed by fire, in this case the city of Kirot. Why Keirot? Other scriptures identify it as the center of worship of the Moabite god Chemosh in the Moabite Mesha Stone archaeological find, we read this, Judgment has come upon Keiroth and Bozrah, upon all the towns of the land of Moab. It further states, I brought back from their booty and I dragged it before Chemosh in Keiroth. In other words, we have actual evidence that the city of Keiroth was a cult worship center to the god Chemosh, and This had a lot to do with Yehovah choosing Kerot as representative of burning up Moab with fire. Now, will this consuming of Kerot with fire be a fire of supernatural origin? No. Once again, it will be the action of an enemy military. When verse 2 ends with the words, along with the sounds of the shofar, it's referring to the noise of the bugle like ram's horn that were always used from the military leadership to signal instructions to their troops as they battled. Now, as with their brother nation, Ammon, Moab will find their royalty and their leadership deported because of the injustice they have perpetrated upon their neighbors. Now even though the term used to describe Moab leadership is in Hebrew, Shfat, and it's properly translated as Judge, in reality, this term is used here, more more means the person who governs, it's a general term. Now, the relatively brief recitation of six oracles judgments of judgment against the six gentile nations have now concluded. Now begins the judgments against God's own people. First Judah, then Ephraim Israel. Now the list of crimes against Judah and Israel are long, and man, they're searing. Remembering that this prophecy of Amos would be read. To the people of Ephraim, Israel, then one can easily imagine that they at first took some comfort in reading of their enemy Judah's denunciation. And even more, for Ephraim, Israel, Judah at this time was nearly as foreign to them as the six foreign nations mentioned before it. Because the people, of that ancient era put such great stock in the mystery of Numbers, it was also significant to them that Judah was the seventh nation to be listed with Israel as the eighth. We also see that while at times God speaks separately of both crimes and judgments against Judah. Then, if I am Israel, he will also speak of them together as one people, all Israel. Amos says that because of Judah's crimes, their precious capital city and home to their all important temple, Jerusalem, is going to be destroyed. And the ramifications for such a scenario would be devastating for Judah far beyond a matter of citizens being killed and buildings razed. Rather the destruction of the temple, although not specifically highlighted, would have been at the forefront of every Judean resident's mind. No temple means nowhere for the Levite priesthood to operate. Nowhere to sacrifice, nowhere to atone for their sins. Nowhere to be purified from ritual impurity. Nowhere to present the required first fruits, offerings, vow offerings, voluntary offerings of thanksgiving. Nowhere to come for the required pilgrimage festivals. Nowhere to have their firstborn dedicated to God. Nowhere for their sons to be circumcised no one to teach them the law, they would be out of harmony with Jehovah with no way to remedy it. They would live in perpetual guilt from their sins and uncleanness from their impurities. Their God would have no place to live, so wouldn't be present with them from their perspective. Judah's crimes against God can be summed up as we find it in verse 4, because they rejected Adonai's Torah and have not observed His laws. Most other Bible versions read because they have rejected the law of the Lord. Both of these traditional ways of translating the words of verse 4 miss the mark. While the complete Jewish Bible gets it right that it was their rejection of the Torah that was the trouble, the word Adonai, Lord, does not belong there. And in most English Bibles, neither the word law nor Lord is present in the Hebrew manuscripts. Rather, what is rejected is specifically said in Hebrew to be the Torah. That word is there. It's the Torah that was rejected. and The author of the Torah is not the Lord, it is Yehovah. that's what it specifically says. See the inclusion of God's name is invariably left out in English translations. For the ancient Israelites, the inclusion of God's formal name had great meaning, because then there was no ambivalence as to which God is being referred to. And gods had names. So pronouncing a God's name was critical to that particular God's identity. Here the sense is that it is the unthinkable reality of Judah's own national God Jehovah turning on them that is leading the way to the destruction of the one and only place where he's to be worshiped and sacrificed to the Jerusalem Temple. I think it would be hard to overstate the shock of such a chilling revelation to the Judean people. Now, I'll state the problem that God had with Israel in a slightly different way. It was not, it was not, was no longer believing in Him, they certainly continued to do so. The problem was disobedience to the covenant He made with Moses and the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. It was the same problem God had with those six Gentile nations. Interesting. Same problem. As with the crimes that Hosea proffered against Israel, so are the crimes enumerated by Amos contained within the Mosaic Covenant as terms of the covenant. The lies they are accused of consist of the incorrect teaching and application of the laws and regulations of the Torah. That is, it is the incorrect teaching by the Levite priests of the meaning and observing of these laws, coupled with an ever growing list of man made traditions and doctrines, which led to God saying, No more. Israel found the laws of Moses to be oppressive. So their civil and religious leaders began setting God's laws aside and making their own doctrines that served their own interests and in some cases just pleased the people in general. And since it is the law of Moses that provides the definition of God's moral code, then Israel found itself deep in immorality without even being aware of it. The modern Christian Church has, for the most part, done the same thing. Let me define modern Christian Church. This is the Church, along with its doctrines and customs as we know it today, that is modeled after that which was created in the 4th century AD in Rome a new version of church that was very different from what had existed in its original. This means, the the means by which the modern Christian church rejected God's Torah is therefore different from the way Judah had rejected it it, in that while Judah still pointed to the law as valid, but at the same time perverting and misapplying it, The new church simply abolished God's laws and commands on the grounds of it being too oppressive, too legalistic, faulty, unfair, unreasonable, because no one can do them all. I ask you, which of those two types of rejection is worse? I'm not sure I'm equipped to render that judgment. But what I am sure of, that the end result is sure the same. A whole lot of surprised people who were certain they were in good stead with God found out they weren't after their spiritual and moral condition had reached a point of no return in God's eyes. And just like for the modern ch- Christian church, it was the forebears of Judah's and Israel's religious and governmental, governmental leaders who were the first to walk in these errors. In other words, what Amos says is happening in Judah and Israel is nothing particularly new other than for the inevitable consequences, the curses, for their wrong behavior. Well, They finally arrived. God no longer will be mercifully patient, nor will He even accept their repentance, no matter how sincere it is, in lieu of withholding His judgment. Now, verse six, well, this moves on to the judgment and crimes of Ephraim Israel. Now, the first crime listed is that they sell the upright for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes. In Hebrew, it is that they sell the tzaddik for silver, the ebion for a pair of na'al. Zadik is best translated as righteous, Ebion as poor, and Naal as sandals. See, the idea of this statement is not to say that poor people are automatically also righteous in the sense of righteousness before God. Rather, the way the term is used here, it means righteous in the sense of being not guilty of breaking any kind of societal law. They were honest people. They weren't criminals. So the accusation is that innocent people were being sold into slavery for no other reason than profit, as opposed to them being sold into bond bond servitude to pay off a debt that they had defaulted on, or perhaps as a means to pay someone Reparations for a crime they had committed against them. God despises the first scenario, human slave trafficking, but accepted as proper justice the second, justly administered bond servitude. Well, what's the meaning of being sold for a pair of sandals? Is this to be taken literally? Well, of course not. It's like the American expression of I bought that car for peanuts. Peanuts was not the medium of exchange, I assure you. The term peanuts simply indicated a ridiculously low price that was probably unfair to the seller. Likewise being sold for a pair of sandals was a common expression in that era that carried the same meaning. The Jewish Tanakh scholar Shalom Im translates verses 6 and 7 this way, which I think much better brings across into modern English the intent of the original Hebrew. He says, it should say, because they have sold for silver the innocent and the needy for hidden gain, they who trample the heads of the poor into the dust of the ground and thrust the humble off of the road. A man and his father cohabit with the same young woman, thereby profaning my holy name." What's being talked about here is social injustice, unscrupulous behavior by those wealthy few who already have so much. The poor, who especially in Bible times but still to this day are often victimized by being defenseless against unfair and unjust treatment. As Shalom and Paul concludes, in sum, the indictment boils down to the lack of pity and instead contempt for human dignity. Now, while I agree with that collu- uh, conclusion to a point, my personal take is that this particular accusation is a blatant example of breaking one of the two foundational underpinnings of God's Torah contained in both natural law and in the law of Moses which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And using this case example of what amounts to not loving your neighbor, it better illustrates what we discussed earlier about the use of the Hebrew term Ahav which translates to love. That is, the indictment is not about a lack of having warm affections for your fellows. Rather, it is that we have a God-defined moral obligation to practically and tangibly do good deeds of mercy and charity for others, regardless of how we might feel in our hearts. That is, our actions are not to be emotion-driven but rather we are duty-bound to perform them. So we have as much obligation to see to the well-being of others as we naturally do by human instinct to see to the well-being of ourselves. This is the correct understanding of love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, Verse 7 expands upon the indictment Against Ephraim, Israel, it began in verse 6. And the words about trampling the heads of the poor into the ground are yet another expression meant to make a point. It means to say the poor are treated as though they're dirt, worthless, fit only to be used for the pleasure and profit of the upper class. The words about the poor being forced from the road is both literal and it's an expression. It is meant to indicate that the upper classes stand in the way of progress, or probably more. The intent of the author is to highlight the poor being denied justice in the courts of law. They prevent the needy from bettering their situation. Now, Without doubt, there were also regular instances of the aristocrat class literally forcing the lower classes off the highways so that they could pass unimpeded. Now, the matter about father and son sharing the same young woman is all about violating God's sexual purity laws. I want to take the remainder of our time together today to go to God's moral law code to see exactly what He ordains about sexual morality. First, We're going to look at the laws themselves. Then, second, the consequences for breaking those laws. Do not ever think that somehow or another the advent of Jesus changed any of this. This applies to every human being on earth. First, the laws of sexual purity. I'm going to start reading. Uh, from Le- Leviticus 18, starting at verse 1. Adonai said to Moshe, to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them, I am Adonai your God. You are not to engage in the activities found in the land of Egypt, where you used to live. You're not to engage in the activities found in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you. Nor are you to live by their laws. You are to obey my rulings and laws and live accordingly, I am Adonai your God. You are to observe my laws and rulings, if a person does them, he will have life through them, I am Adonai. None of you is to approach anyone who is a close relative in order to have sexual relations, I am Adonai. You are not to have sexual relations with your father, you are not to have sexual relations with your mother, she is your mother. Do not have sexual relations with her. You are not to have sexual relations with your father's wife. That is your father's prerogative. You are not to have sexual relations with your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere. Do not have sexual relations with them. You are not to have sexual relations with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. Do not have sexual relations with them because their sexual disgrace will be your own. You are not to have sexual relations with your father's with your father's wife's daughter born to your father because she is your sister. Do not have sexual relations with her. You are not to have sexual relations with your father's sister because she is your father's close relative. You are not to have sexual relations with your mother's sister because she is your mother's close relative. You are not to disgrace your father's brother by having sexual relations with his wife because she is your aunt. You are not to have sexual relations with your daughter in law because she is your son's wife. Do not have sexual relations with her. You are not to have sexual relations with your brother's wife because this is your brother's prerogative. You are not to have sexual relationships with both a woman and her daughter, nor are you to have sexual relations with her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are close relatives of hers and it would be shameful. You are not to take a woman to be a rival with her sister and have sexual relations with her while the sister is still alive. You are not to approach a woman in order to have sexual relations with her when she is unclean from her time of Nidah. You are not to go to bed with your neighbor's wife and thus become unclean with her. You are not to let any of your children be sacrificed to Molech, thereby profaning the name of your God on and I. You are not to go to bed with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. You are not to have sexual relations with any kind of an animal and thus become unclean with it, nor is any woman to present herself to an animal to have sexual relationships with it. It's perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, because all the nations which I am expelling ahead of you are defiled with them." Now here's the penalties for breaking these laws of sexual purity. Listen carefully. This starts in Leviticus 20, starting in verse 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, that is, with the wife of a fellow countryman, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. The man who goes to bed with his father's wife has disgraced his father sexually, and both of them must be put to death. Their blood is on them. If a man goes to bed with his daughter-in-law, both of them must be put to death. They have committed a perversion, and their blood is on them. If a man goes to bed with a man... As with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They must be put to death. Their blood is on them. If a man marries a woman and her mother, it's depravity. They are to be put to death by fire, both he and they, so that there will be no depravity among you. If a man has sexual relations with an animal, he must be put to death and you're to kill the animal. If a woman approaches an animal and has sexual relations with it, relationships with it, you are to kill the woman and the animal. Their blood will be on them. If a man takes his sister, his father's daughter, his mother's daughter, has sexual relations with her, and she consents, it's a shameful thing. They are to be cut off publicly. He has had sexual relations with his sister. He will bear the consequences of their wrongdoing. If a man goes to bed with a woman in her cycle, her menstrual period, and has sexual relationships with her. He has exposed the source of her blood. She has exposed the source of her blood. Both of them are to be cut off from their people. You're not to have sexual relations with your mother's sister, your father's sister. A person who does this has had sexual relationships with his close relative. They will bear the consequences of their wrongdoing. If a man goes to bed with his uncle's wife, he has disgraced his uncle sexually. They will bear the consequences of their sin and die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is uncleanness, he has disgraced his brother sexually, they will be childless. You are to observe all My regulations and rulings and act on them, so that the land to which I am bringing you won't vomit you out. Do not live by the regulations of the nations which I am expelling ahead of you, because they did all these things. This is why I detest them. I want you to ponder over the next few days how all this compares to the ways that the modern Western society and even some branches of the modern Western church now define sexual morality. Okay, we will continue with Am- Amos chapter 2 next time.